This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 51. This week, we talked to Brian Lagunas about Prism, the coolest framework you're not using, the 2015 developer survey, Build 2015 is coming to you, and Tabs versus Spaces, it's finally settled. Today, we have Brian Lagunas. He's a project manager at Infragistics for all things XAML. He's a Microsoft MVP, a Microsoft Patterns and Practices champion, co-leader of the Boise.net developer user group, board member of the Boise Code Camp, speaker, trainer, and Pluralsight author. He can be found speaking at a variety of events around the world, and his talks always involve some form of XAML, as well as how to build modular applications with Prism. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on your show. Yeah, yeah. Great having you. And uh, Carl, we have uh, a total of 10 kids in the background. (laughs) (laughs) So I apologize to all the listeners ahead of time if you end up hearing them. I got three on my side. Carl has, he's got a basketball team, and and then Brian has his too. So uh, they'll probably... uh, well, they'll probably come through every once in a while here. Uh, feedback. So if you want to get mentioned on the show, uh, comment on our website at msdevshow.com. You can also comment on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. Um, and we really love it whenever you guys leave reviews on iTunes, a star review, or go out there and leave us some feedback. We really appreciate it. That really helps spread the word about the show. Let's jump into the news. Uh, Carl, you want to cover this first one? Sure. Uh, somebody dug up that there's a uh, uh, Microsoft Payments uh, Inc. company and that mm-hmm. uh, they just passed regulations so they can uh, start doing financial payments in the U.S. And uh, with Apple Pay being huge on Apple and Google having their own, it, you know, the Windows platform hasn't had something. And now it looks like there's strongly uh, some good evidence that they're going to have something going forward. OK, so it says money transmitter. Yes, they have a money transmitter license, which will allow them to wire money electronically. Okay, that's interesting. So that'll allow all the kind of payments that uh, everybody's used to on the other platforms. Okay. Anything else about that one? No, you know, it's something that somebody dug up. There's not an official announcement or product around it, but, you know, it's big enough. I mean... I'm excited. I I would like to have, you know, use my phone for a payment. I don't like my wallet. So that's the way to go, man. Uh, okay, this is probably our biggest story of the week. Uh, the 2015 developer survey from Stack Overflow. So I'm sure everybody that listens to the show knows about Stack Overflow. It's it's extremely common for uh, Q&A for developers. So whenever they run one of these surveys, it's usually extremely comprehensive. Let's see, they had uh, over 26,000 people from 157 countries participate, which is really, really cool. Um, so it covers... You know, they show a map here and it, it covers it's pretty much every geographical location. Uh, so let's just kind of go through this. Uh, so what stood out to you, Carl? Um, that there's one person who works with lasers. <laughs> one person? Yes. Uh, I didn't catch that one. That's funny. Yeah, they, they did kind of call that out a little bit. Uh, obviously, that was a little bit more tongue in cheek call out. I, I, I knew right away what your favorite was going to be, though. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So. So, yeah, I, I called out the, the the tabs versus spaces. And uh, basically, this said that tabs won, at least if we go by the by the popular vote. And uh, 
man, I just, the debate over this, like, first of all, I use spaces, you know, that's, that's the funny thing is I, I use spaces. I don't use tabs, but I actually think tabs are a better idea, but I was reading through like the, the hacker news comments and, uh, you know, this one guy, he just, he just went off and he's just like, there is nothing, nothing at all better about tabs in any possible way. <laughs> and I love it because all the arguments come down to like bad editors, you know, on, on either side of the argument. Like you could you could literally like search and replace those articles, swap like tabs and spaces and all the arguments would still be valid. What I find interesting uh, is actually the age myself. Uh, if you notice us old fogies, yep. we, we, we drop off pretty quick there. So I find that a little interesting myself. Yeah, 24, 20 to 24 is about a quarter of the developer population. Uh, 25 to 29 is 28% of the developer population. And then, yeah, 30 to 34, it goes down to eight, you know, 17.8% right away. You get up to 35 and above, or I should say 35 to 39, it's already at 9%. Yeah, so, so what do you so, think happens to us? I mean, because I'm in that group. <laughs> where do, do I just disappear? I mean, do, what happened? No, I, you know, I'd actually mentioned something like this to, to Scott Hanswin when he was on the show. And and I had referenced back to a, a .NET Rocks episode where they had Uncle Bob Martin on. And I guess this is just sort of additional evidence of that because he had a, he had a pretty good uh, point. It was sort of back of the napkin math, but it was still sort of valid. He was talking about how um, the the number of developers doubles every, I don't know, however many years, like four years. So in a four year span, half of those developers are are new, right? And they're probably, you know, they're probably young. Like I don't, I don't think people, it's probably far less likely for somebody to, you know, get into the the field as they get older, right? I mean, people typically pick their careers early on. So I think we have this influx of of new developers. Um, I guess the only anti-evidence for that is the fact that the 25 to 29 is a bigger group than the 20 to 24. I can't really explain that. And maybe us older guys just don't have time to spend on doing surveys. <laughs> yeah, or maybe maybe they get promoted out. Um, you know, maybe it's not considered like a you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be a, a developer on here anymore. Although they did have some other categories which we can talk about here in a little bit. Um, gender uh, was ninety two point one percent male, five point eight percent female. There's definitely a problem there that we need to fix. Well, another aspect too is you know. They, they mentioned that none of this is normalized. So just how many of us older people are just too busy to take these surveys? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't take, I didn't even know what was going on. I, I saw it a different year, but yeah, there's definitely, you know, the way that you find out about the survey, I'm sure goes into it. Uh, most popular technology is JavaScript. Number one at 54.4%. Uh, number two is SQL, which was kind of interesting. Then Java, then C sharp. I was going to say the stat that I actually thought was kind of interesting is as a way to measure, you know, actual pay, you know, compared to mm-hmm. currency, they they did how much you got paid per Big Mac, you know, in, right. in Big Macs. And, <laughs> yeah, and if that were the which case, is probably pretty valid. And if that's the case, uh, you'd uh, make the most in the Ukraine. Yeah. And and that's such a good metric because McDonald's, I'm sure that they have like, um, you know, a full staff of um, people doing like uh, linear algebra that that are figuring out, you know, the, the perfect amount to charge for any given area. So they've sort of already gone through all the work of figuring out, um, you know, how a Big Mac should be priced relative. So I think that's actually a pretty good metric. Yeah. So, you know, in the Ukraine, your average salary is 26,000 a year, but the Big Mac's $1.20. So right. you can get more of them. So I could retire there and have the best of both. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing here was uh, remote work. So it seems like, it seems like that's on the uptick. Um, and then there are a lot of people that, um, you know, have to work remote or, or prefer it. 
Um, I think there were some other stats on working from home. Uh, where were they? Working from home, who wants it? Uh, 50% of developers say working remote is at least somewhat important. Uh, there's a fair amount of people that are working remote. You know, I will say as, an, as someone who has been working from home for a long time now, uh, it, it takes a special mindset to work from home, and I don't think everyone can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, there's there's a lot of materials out there on it. I, I've read I've read a lot of information on on working from home, and I know Scott Hanselman talks about it a lot too. And everybody on this call here is remote, so we all know how that goes. I love it. I love being able to do it. Uh, anything else you wanted to pick out of here, Carl? No, I, th- I think we cherry picked a lot of the the good things. If you want to check it out for yourself, visit, visit our website, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, bringing Build 2015 to you. Yes, I know both me and Jason will be at Build. I don't know if you're planning on being there, uh, Brian. I'm going to be there with bells and whistles. Excellent. Uh, we should meet up then. We should. Yeah. So that that's happening April 29th through May 1st at uh, San Francisco at the Moscone Center. But if you can't be there because it's already sold out, um, there's a reminder that um, all of these are going to be uh, streamed and they're going to be made on demand uh, within two days of the actual event. So if there's a few sessions that you're really interested in, you'll be able to access these. Uh, but for the first time, they're, they're going to do a build tour. And uh, uh, they mentioned that there's going to be uh, 23 global events. So it's these are not just U.S. centric. Um, they're going to be taking some of these um, presentations on the road. How many of those are in Wisconsin, Carl? Uh, I, I, I'm just going to guess and say zero. Actually, yeah, there's one in Chicago. That's not too far from us. Yeah. So if you're interested in, 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 you know, the content of this and you can't attend it or, you know, get these any of the other ways, you might have a regional event near you. So you, uh, at, at the very least, uh, you know, check out, see if, uh, there's one in your area. Perfect. Uh, up next, Xamarin adds Microsoft visual studio support to its free student offer. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, with, with Xamarin getting to be you know, more and more the go-to um, mobile development platform. It's uh, exciting that they're making this available, you know, with the Visual Studio integration to students. Uh, now that uh, Visual Studio also has the community edition, which anybody can grab for free, not just students. Um, this seems like a, a no-brainer if you're in college and you're interested in, you know, expanding your skill sets. Yeah. Or even uh, even high school, middle school. I mean, I think there's uh, I think there's some people that are getting started on this even even earlier. And I'm trying to get people hooked for sure. Well, my my daughter is nine and uh, she's been presenting at Boise Code Camp since she was six. She's already written a Windows phone app. Uh, So, (laughs) I mean, this is right up her alley. Okay, she needs to call my son. Yep. <laughs> get him get him in line. <laughs> so it mentions that to uh, qualify for this, you must be enrolled in an accredited high school, university, or college. So, Okay, that makes sense, though. Uh, and then Microsoft announces Nano Server for Modern Apps and Cloud. So this is, you know, this came off as, I think this is a little bit of a teaser. I'm sure that there's going to be some more in-depth information on this um, at Build. But the idea here is to have basically, um, as they describe it, a deeply refactored version of Windows Server with a small footprint and remotely managed installation. Um, so it's optimized for cloud and DevOps, DevOps workflow. Um, so the idea is uh, being able to run your application with as, as small of a um, footprint as possible in the operating system, and then also to work really well with these ca- container technologies, being able to spin up uh, you know, a base operating system a lot quicker and taking up a lot less space and general footprint is a lot smaller. So this results in, let's see here, 93% lower VHD size. So that's pretty significant. 
uh, 92% fewer critical bulletins, which is nice. So less, uh, less updates that you actually have to run on the machine and then 80% fewer reboots, which is nice as well. Uh, so this just helps out with, like I said, those cloud and container type scenarios. And looking in on the details here, you know, it mentions that, that there's not going to be a local login, no remote desktop. Um, so right, you're right. going to have to manage this with PowerShell. I mean, this isn't going to be for, you know, the faint of heart, but it's not anything that's not approachable either. Yeah. And if you're doing if you're doing DevOps, you should not be RDPing in your servers anyway. Right. They should all be managed through PowerShell or through an agent that you're you know remotely controlling like Chef or Puppet or something like that. So that just makes that just makes sense. Take out the stuff that you don't need. And then this last one here announcing get large file storage. So this one just came through. And uh, what's interesting about this, they're trying to solve this horrible, horrible problem in source control of the binaries. Right. So we always have. Um, we'll have things like, um, actually they have it right here in the, in the, in the chart that they show the, the PSD, right. Mm-hmm. The Photoshop file. Um, I always, I never know what to do with those because I, my rule has always been like, it has to be the source that get actually gets stored in source control and, um, PSDs, you know, from Photoshop sort of fit, you know, they sort of match that except that they can be gigantic. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't quite feel right. Cause it just makes working it with that repository, a huge pain. So th- this is an extension that will let you offload that file up to, um, GitHub and, um, they'll take care of everything for you. So you get a gigabyte of free file storage, uh, by default, but you can also upgrade to, um, other options. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be looking at this for my, uh, my audio and video stuff I do. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you have audio, yeah, you're right. Any kind of audio files or video files that, that are sort of going along with that. Like if you had an intro video on your website or, or anything like that, you want, you don't want that to be stored in source control. Yeah. I, I just clicked the sign up for early access button. So. <laughs> <laughs> Crossing my fingers for you. Cool. Okay. Well, let's get into talking to Brian about prism. Uh, so my favorite. Yeah. Topic. Yeah. Well, what a coincidence. So, <laughs> so one question I have, I, I definitely don't know a lot about this topic, so you're really going to have to help me out here. So let's start with the basics with, you know, what is it and why would I want to use it? Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, confusion around Prism in general when people talk about it. And sometimes people talk about it not knowing what it is, thinking they know what it is when they really don't know what it is. Uh, but basically, Prism is a set of guidance for building, you know, modular applications in WPF. Okay, that's kind of where it was born from. Back in 2008, when Microsoft Patterns and Practices uh, started working on this, uh, they supported supported Silverlight and uh, WPF and eventually Windows Phone. But it was really about providing developers guidance to build these, you know, highly scalable, maintainable uh, XAML applications that are modular in nature, meaning they could be made up of many pieces. When I say pieces, I uh, think you're inside Visual Studio, okay? And uh, think of Outlook. Mm -hmm. Think of Outlook. In Outlook, you have uh, that little Outlook bar on the left-hand side. It has like your contacts group, a mail group. You'll have like a a calendar group. And when you click on those, your your section on the right-hand side changes and your toolbars at the top change. Yeah, the context totally changes. Context completely changes. So what Prism does is it provides guidance to take those, that app, the type of app, and say, okay, where are my major functional areas of my application? Okay, where can this be divided up into separate projects? Think inside Visual Studio, we have a solution. And you know, the monolithic approach is you just have this one project and you have all your views and all the code that run the views in that one main executable project. Uh, well, Prism lets you take those 
major functional areas, say like the contacts group, and pull it out into a separate project. Okay, then you have a project for your calendar. Then you have a separate project for your contacts and a separate project for mail and all that. And then when you run the app, everything just comes together dynamically at runtime and it just all magically works for you. And you're using you know, patterns and design principles. You're using dependency injection to achieve inversion of control, using some type of dependency injection container. Uh, you may or may not be using an MPVM uh, pattern. Now, historically, uh, Prism has never been an MPVM framework. So anyone who says, oh, Prism MPVM framework, historically, they've been wrong. It's not. It, it doesn't care. It sits, it sits higher than that. You know, it's... It's this overarching architecture for your entire application, okay. okay? And it doesn't really care if you use MVVM or MVC or code behind it. It's it's irrelevant to a Prism application. Uh, now, having said that, you know there have been more features included in Prism to support implementing MVVM. So it's another piece to the puzzle, which is the overall guidance of building an actual application. Uh, you know, there's other concepts in Prism such as uh, commanding. But not just commanding as you might think, oh, I command, delegate command. Or uh, you may have heard of it as a relay command mm -hmm. where you basically provide a, a method in place for uh, you know, an event like execute and can't execute. Well, you know, one of the cool features about Prism is you have what's called a composite command, which is basically like a, think of a save all command. Okay. And then you have multiple instances of a view or documents in your app. And you want to hit that save all command and then fire all the save commands that are on those documents. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what a composite command allows you to do. So we have some some unique concepts to commanding. Uh, we have event aggregation using a pub subtype thing for loosely communicating between these these assemblies because you're in different assemblies now. How do you communicate across that? So it's really an overarching uh, set of libraries that help you build these very complex, scalable, maintainable, and testable applications. Okay, and then you mentioned that it it's not an MVM MVVM framework. It it does have some pieces in there now to do that. So would somebody, can somebody plug in a different MVVM framework? Would they want to do that or, or can they get by with what's in there? They can get by with what's in there, especially with the new addition of the view model locator that we've added in Prism. It came out in Prism 5 uh, and it's different than most view model locators. Are you familiar with the view model locator pattern? You're talking about like automatically wiring up your view model with your view? Yeah, well, a lot of times what a view model locator does is the implementation requires you to create this class. And for every view model you have, you have to create a property to expose, to return the right view model. And then you have another uh, file that has some type of resource dictionary that will be the view that would be implicitly applied uh, when your view model is created and all this stuff. Well, what's really cool about Prism's view model locator is you just set a property, auto wire view model equals true. And then using your container that you choose, uh, by default, we use Unity. It will use your container to resolve not only the uh, view model automatically based on convention, but it will also take any of those dependencies that your view model uh, depends on and resolve those as well because you're using inversion okay. control. All right. You mentioned that uh, this came out of the Microsoft Patterns and Practices. Um, you know, what, Where did it get its beginnings there and why did they create it? Well... You know, when uh, WPF and Silverlight were out, people really needed guidance around building apps. Before, in WinForms, you had CAB, right? I don't know if you remember CAB. That's, that's going a little back there. Uh, but, but CAB was actually kind of a pain in the butt to use, but that's besides the point. Uh, so 
you know, the Microsoft Patterns of Practices team wanted to create similar guidance to basically help people be successful with the newer WPF and Silverlight technologies back then. And that's where where this was born. Cool. Um, so what are the, you know, where is Prism going? What are some of the changes that you plan on introducing? Well, uh, I would like to announce that, uh, you know, it wasn't mentioned before, but actually Microsoft has open sourced the Prism library. Yep. So, we'll have a link to that. Uh, uh, there was a, a blog post on that. Yeah, the blog post is on the uh, the Microsoft blog. It's uh, I think they call it Prism Grows Up, yep. and they're basically discussing. They're they're basically saying, hey, we've open sourced Prism. Uh, you know, we've we've taken it as far as we can take it, and now we're gonna rely on a new team to head up the direction of Prism and, and keep it moving forward, and you know, do what it, it needs to do to stay relevant in in this ever changing technology mm-hmm. field. And uh, myself is part of that team. Uh, Brian Noyes. And uh, Ariel Ben Horish is also, uh, he raised his hand to, to participate, but we have a GitHub repo now, so it's on GitHub. It's uh, under the Apache license. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're open source now. We're driven by the community, and its needs are driven by the community. So, uh, we're really excited about that. And I'd like to mention, you know, it, for people who have used Prism, they would notice like this two year release cycle. Like every two years, Microsoft would release a new version or a new feature for Prism. Well, within a week of Prism being open source, we always already have a preview for Xamarin form support. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So you guys are moving uh, really, really fast then. We're moving extremely fast. We've made some dramatic changes to the structure of Prism uh, besides changing all the namespaces to remove Microsoft. Uh, but we've completely restructured the, the dependency uh, tree, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to reposition Prism as more of a cross-platform XAML technology because it, it will always be to solve XAML mm-hmm. problems. So don't expect to see it, you know, for any other platform that is not XAML-based. Yeah, the first comment on this blog post, I'm just going to read it. It's it's kind of bad. He, <laughs> The first comment, so this means Prism is dead, yes? <laughs> so, you know, that was that was sort of the, the knee-jerk reaction from the community, apparently. But it sounds like, uh, it sounds like you're uh, continually proving them wrong based on uh, on the rate of change now. Right, and actually, you know, a lot of those people probably don't even know what Prism is. They just uh, they just have a comment. Right. Uh, they don't know the history of it. They probably don't use it. And uh, I know the comment you're talking about. I was actually on a number of threads, uh, you know, rebutting a lot of, of people's uh, ill-informed opinions. Uh, you know, one person, if you read further down, it's like, well, I don't know what Prism is. I've never used it. But, and he gave some opinion of how it's dead and it will never do anything and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, well, you know, I find that interesting. Anything so, I don't understand is just going to die. <laughs> I, you know, I have that control over projects. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, you know, if it stayed with Microsoft, it would have died. Mm-hmm. The reason it's not dead is because Microsoft open sourced it. Otherwise, yes, it would have okay. died. And it sounds like you're really passionate about it. So it's, it sounds like it's in the right hands. Yeah, the team that's handling now is probably some of the most passionate people about Prism that I know. Okay, well, that's pretty awesome. Carl, I'm sorry to interrupt this, but I got to talk about something that's really cool. Uh, so what I wanna, is it? I want to talk about Infragistics. So they have controls for pretty much every platform. So they have, for example, for desktop applications, they cover controls for Windows Forms, WPF, Windows 8, uh, lots of mobile controls. So Windows Phone, iOS, Android, and, and also Xamarin, which is really cool. So I was working on uh, a Xamarin project recently, and uh, they have controls that will actually work within Xamarin Forms, and then they automatically work across all of the platforms. And then they also cover web, um, ASP.NET MVC, 
jQuery, you name it, they got it. Yeah, I'm working on a WPF app right now, and I wanted to check out some of their controls. They got an app that you can download where it has examples of everything that you need. So if you want like a color picker or something, you can go on there, you can play with it. You can toggle all the different options. They even show like all the different XAML and code behind that is needed to interact with it. It's it's a nice way to get used to uh, something before you just go ahead, jump in and, and pay for it. And then they also have this amazing prototyping pool out there, tool out there called Indigo Studio. So this is really cool. I haven't seen this before, but you go out there and you can actually rapidly build an app with this application. So you can build a, a demo. So if you have an idea, you can actually prototype this and then it's usable. You can actually navigate through all the screens um, and you could show this to your stakeholders and get funding for your project. It's really cool. And then you can actually demo this right out in your browser. So there's some samples out there. If you go out and check out their Indigo Studio and scroll down to the sample section, uh, you can actually view some of these samples right in your browser, which is really cool. So you got to go check those out. And not only that, but they have community-made uh, uh, samples as well. So things that other people have just donated out for you to check out. Very cool. And then there's also a lot of great enterprise solutions, such as Report Plus for making dashboards, and then also Share Plus, which is a great way to work with SharePoint in a, in a mobile application. So check it all out at infragistics.com. And there are free trials, so you have nothing to lose. And like you said, you can download these applications and check all this stuff out ahead of time. So we want to thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. One of the things I was going to mention, uh, you also have a blog post where you mentioned that, you know, there's 338,000 CodePlex downloads, 123,000 NuGet downloads, and nearly 5 million page views. So obviously this is is something that people are are using. Do you have any uh, examples of maybe some high profile uh, things that are using it? There are, uh, let's just say Prism and WPF run the financial industry. If you go down to Wall Street and you look at the traders, computers, the apps that are running, those are hardcore WPF composite Prism applications. Awesome. Uh, the, reason, the reason you don't hear a lot about Prism or you don't hear a lot about WPF in general, which everyone thinks WPF is dead because they never hear about it, is because WPF is not a public type technology. You don't see a lot of public facing apps written in WPF. They're all internal secret you know, business mission critical apps that no one will see outside. The and they're wall. and they're running the world. They are technically running. Yeah, the I world. mean, one of the the companies I work with, um, I can't name them, but even if I name them, you probably have never even heard of them. Yet they're super important in in building uh, so many huge things that uh, that happen on on you know on planet Earth. It's uh, it's really crazy, and they have you know like eighty million lines of WPF code. Yeah, and well, even Visual Studio is WPF. Yeah. Oh, good point. Uh, so yeah, so you know, a lot of people like to uh, to jump on the it's dead bandwagon mainly because of what happened with Silverlight, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it, it's just not the case. And Prism has a huge user base. I'm often you know traveling the world, talking to people about Prism, giving lunch and learns at some of the biggest companies that you could think of, and even the big companies people don't know are that big. Uh, you know, there's a construction company here in Boise that was sixty thousand employees, and we use Prism. Oh wow, yeah, exactly. You know. We're, so uh, it, it, it has a huge adoption base. So it's very important that going forward that not only do we keep innovating, but we don't break who's, you know, what they're doing now. Right now, when they upgraded Prism 6, there's going to be some breaking changes, but only in terms of namespaces. So a simple find and replace or a resharper would fix them. Uh, and then NuGet will take care of the reference upgrades. Okay, perfect. So if I want to get started with this... Uh, on a new application, or if I want to retrofit an existing application, how difficult is that? Okay, so when you get started with a Prism, there's actually a couple things. Uh, one, you have to know your XAML technology. 
So in this case, we're going to talk WPF because Prism has always been primarily a WPF uh, solution. So you have to know WPF. There's just no getting around okay. it. You're going to have to be familiar with with different patterns and uh, development practices uh, that you would use in, in a production app. You know, concepts such as inversion of control, dependency injection, you know, design patterns such as MVVM. You know, I mean, you're going to have to know data binding and XAML. You have to know all that stuff to be successful. Uh, so if you don't know that, you got to learn that first. And I would always suggest, you know, learn the basics, then keep adding more on until you get to where you want to be. Uh, but you can also watch, uh, I got some Pluralsight courses on introduction to, to Prism, what's new in Prism 5.0. I got some advanced Prism courses that I'm working on. I've already released the first one on showing multiple shells. Uh, Brian Noyes has some good uh, Prism uh, courses on Pluralsight as well, as well as a really good data binding, uh, WPF data binding course. So for the people who want to really get knowledgeable in, on data binding, I would start with Brian Noyes' Pluralsight course as well. Uh, and then... You know, my blog, brownlangunas.com, has a ton of, of articles. There are uh, quick starts that ship with Prism that show very basic examples of how to use various features of them. Uh, I mean, there's a ton and ton of content out there. Yeah, and one of the links that we're going to have the show notes is to your Pluralsight page. And I was just looking through, yeah, you have a few courses out there. And I would like to note that they all have um, a near-perfect rating. Um, so that's that's really cool. I always look for anything that's like four four and a half stars and above. And these are, these are four and a half stars. I don't know of any courses that, that have more than 10 views that, that have five stars, but uh, these are all um, very, very well reviewed. Yeah. That's because I paid those. Ah, <laughs> uh, I gotcha. Started. I gotcha. That makes sense. <laughs> just, just shoot me an email. <laughs> so, you know, in your previous statements, you mentioned that, you know, Prism grew up with WPF and, you know, it's really tied to XAML. Now, moving on to uh, universal apps and the XAML version thereof, you know, that comes from a, you know, it's very similar, but it comes from a different, you know, code base. It was rewritten. Is there any nuances or anything different that you uh, have to know about when working with Prism and these, uh, you know, universal apps? Oh, most definitely. Uh, yeah, WinRT and WPF are, I mean, sun and moon, completely different. Uh you know, when you first start getting with WinRT, you want to bang your face through a wall because of all the limitations you run into. It's quite frustrating. And one of the challenges we have uh, for supporting the framework and, you know, supporting Prism and supporting uh, Windows 8 and Windows RT is finding where our guidance can be reused and then creating new guidance for that specific platform. You know, uh, navigation, for example, inside of a WinRT app is completely different than what we would do for WPF. You know, and, and now with Windows 10, which I hope to hear more about at Build, uh, we'll have to reevaluate our WinRT support, and we may completely just redo it altogether uh, because of the new Windows UAP. Okay. So whenever you mention these these small, I, I guess they don't necessarily have to be smaller, but I'm trying to think of, you know, if I'm starting a new project and it, I don't expect it to be like one of these gigantic financial applications, if it's just a, a smaller app. Um, is this, is this still something I might want to put in there from the start or should my application get to a certain size before I start considering it? Well, let me put it this way. Any WPF app I write, I always use Prism. Okay. I mean, it's just so easy to get started. Once you know it, it's, it's dead simple. You can write basically a Prism shell in five minutes. Okay. If that, I mean, it's ridiculously easy. And actually I'm going to be writing some, uh, some visual studio project and item templates to make it even easier. Just to you know, just create new Prism app. Boom, you're all stubbed out. Uh, but 
I personally never write a WPF app without using Prism. It's it's become so second nature that I almost forget what's Prism and what's part of the WPF. Yeah, and and like you mentioned earlier, I mean, it comes with um, things like IOC and um, I mean some of that view model management. So from that perspective, I I, I find that kind of nice if you like what's built into there and. Since you uh, since you run the project, uh, I'm sure you like everything about it. <laughs> but uh, that would be kind of nice not having to like sort of pull in all those you know different projects. It's like, oh well, I need something now for for doing you know for this particular feature, and you have to keep pulling in all these different NuGet projects. So it, it is kind of interesting from that point of view, right? And and, and to, to add to that, uh, you know, when you're starting a new app, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. Mm-hmm. We have messaging solved. We have composite modularity solved. We have yep. region navigation solved. We have the MVVM solved. You know, we, we have commanding solved. I mean, we have all these things solved for you. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You just plug it in where you want it and where you want to use it. And one of the, you know, one of the bad reputations Prisms get is, oh, it's so heavy. It's so big. It's <laughs> really not. If you look at the assembly, it's, I mean, it's very, very small. It's just uh, what we provide, the guidance we provide, just helps in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to slow down your application, right? No. I mean, it's not it's not big enough to, to make it like a monolith out of the box. Oh, heck no. And, uh, you know, I will say anytime you add a level of abstraction, you add a level of complexity to your code, no matter if you're using Prism or not. Uh, you know, you start using a, a container with a version of control. I mean, you're going to create some type of complexity and a mm-hmm. small uh, performance hit for resolving those types using reflection and things like that. Uh, but it, it, you will not notice a big difference from using Prism and not using it. So correct me if I'm wrong here with this. You know, I'm just trying to pull on, you know, a little bit of, you know, uh, my web background. So, you know, in the, in the past, I may have, you know, started off, you know, grabbing like a knockout because I needed binding. And I may, I mean, pulling all these different packages because I need them. But if I'm starting something new and I, I don't want to have to do that, I just might go get Angular because it solves, you know, the routing, the binding and everything else for me all at once. So is Prism kind of like Angular in that regard where it just kind of gives me that full package and I can just lean on on what it gives me? Yes, exactly. And I think Brian Noyes actually called it the uh, the Angular type, you know, I forgot what he said, so I don't want to mess the quote all up, but it was a really good one uh, about it being very similar to ang- Angular. Uh, and that's basically that's a exactly really good analogy. Yeah. You, you just bring it in. If you want to use the modularity, use the modularity. If you want to use the region navigation part, use the region navigation. You want commanding, use it. You want the view model locator, use it. If you want, you know, the pub sub event aggregation, use it, but you don't have to just use the part you want to. And then um, one question I had was around how you actually uh, configure this. So is it is it really biased toward convention over configuration? You know, like just being able to, uh, you know, name my my files in a certain way and, and name my view models in a certain way. And then everything sort of gets auto wired up or or, you know, do I have a choice there? How it works? You know, just can you walk me through that? Yeah, so there's only really one place in Prism that does have a convention, mm-hmm. and that's with the new view model locator okay. uh, to help auto wire up your your view model. You know, so it'll take the name of the view and then append view model to the end of it. So if you say main page, it's gonna look for a main page view model class, instantiate that using the container, and then you know set the data context, and you're you're up and running. Uh, you can change that convention, of course. Uh, but that is the convention by default. So that's really the only place in Prism that that uses convention. Okay. So who do you think should go out and uh, and check this out? Is this? I mean, should it be anybody who's listening to this should go out and check it out and see if it applies? 
Well, definitely if you're a XAML developer, if you're mm -hmm. doing uh, WPF, uh, definitely a Xamarin Forms. There's a preview out right now on NuGet. Just search for prism.forms, uh, and you'll see. And you'll, you'll have to make sure to switch to in your NuGet manager when you're when you're adding your packages. You'll have to switch to show the pre-releases. Okay. Because uh, by default it says show stable only, you, you know. But this is a pre-release, so it's not going to be stable. So right. if you want that, just flip that little switch and then look for uh, prism.forms. You can try out the new Xamarin Forms uh, guidance we have. We're working on right now. Is there anything unique about how how it works with Xamarin Forms? Uh, yeah, it, there actually is. So with Xamarin Forms, the guidance is going a, a little different. Where so you know, if you remember what I was talking about with WPF, mm -hmm. uh, Prism for WPF doesn't care if you use MVVM or not. Doesn't care. Prism for Xamarin Forms does care. Okay, so a lot of the stuff you get with Prism for Xamarin Forms requires the use of the view model locator uh, because there's some magic that happens when those when those connections are made using the view model locator that gives you access to the nav proper navigation service and, and things like that. Because navigation in Xamarin forms is, uh, can be a little ugly beast, to be honest. It's, uh, it's, it's not easy by any means. And it's because navigation in Xamarin forms. So Xamarin forms has a page concept mm -hmm. of a page. Okay. And each page has its own navigation property, which has its own navigation stack. And there's actually two stacks that each page has. You have your modal, and then, of course, your non-modal navigation stacks. And each page has its own. So you can't just have some global navigation service uh, that you create and you know say, oh, I just take the root page navigation and just use that because it's not going to work right. So Prism helps solve that and provide you a navigation service that works reliably in any complex navigation scenario so oh, we're I mean, interesting so it might be worth it just to use it for that just that, that might be the hook you know right now that's the biggest feature really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that that navigation we've we've really been working on and what's unique about uh prisms navigation as well for xamarin forms is you know you can pass any type of parameter from view model view model when you navigate to a view model you're just navigating to a key. You, you don't even know what you navigate. You just say navigate to, you know, view A or, you know, X, Y, Z or, or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And it takes that key and it resolves what you're looking for. And it, it brings everything in with all its dependencies, just like you would expect because it's using uh, Unity. And then, you know, when the view model is being navigated away from, right? So I this view model said, hey, navigate over here to this place. Okay, well, can I be navigated away from? You know, am I allowed to be navigated to? Okay, now if I'm allowed to be navigated to, I know when the view model that called navigation is being navigated away from, and I know when the target has been navigated to. You know, so there's a lot of cool things that you can do with navigation uh, with Prism for Xamarin Forms. Okay, very cool. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that you wanted to mention about Prism? Oh, uh, you know, not. To, I, I mean, we talked a lot about. Yeah, I think that I think that was a good intro. I mean, I I get what it is now, <laughs> so that's a plus. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is when you just do a generic search for Prism, you get all this stuff just saying MVVM, MVVM, and comparing it to other things like MVVM Lite. And really, there's so much more. So I think, you know, the biggest thing is just understanding what are all the, you know, on a high level, what can it do? And if you understand those concepts, you should be able to just jump in and, you know, figure the rest out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, Prism you know, gets compared as an MVVM framework, and it's, it's really not. Heck, it, it didn't even have a view model base class. I mean, it, it doesn't even exist. You know, it has a bindable base class now, but that's just an iNotify property change implementation. You know, that, that's that's nothing. It's just a it's just what I like to call monkey code. You don't want to keep repeating <laughs> that over and over and over, so yep. we just, just kind of do it for you, and then you create your own view model base class. 
Very cool. Okay, let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. So this week, uh, my pick is uh, Document DB, which I think I picked before on the show, but I'm picking it again. It's our show. We can do what we want. Uh, it is now generally available, and that's why I wanted to mention it. Um, that is as of April 8th, which is pretty cool. And um, uh, another announcement on here is a data migration tool for getting data into Document DB. Because uh, one of the issues with switching to something like this is, you know, it's just it, it can be difficult getting your existing data into there and, and switching your code over. Uh, so there's a tool that lets you uh, bring data in from JSON, CSV, SQL Server, MongoDB, and also existing Document DB collections, which is pretty cool. So there should be no reason why you can't get your data in there. And this is a, you know, just a reminder, this is a document database that was built to be cloud native. So it is designed to scale. Um, it's designed to be extremely reliable and it's designed for excellent performance. It uses a combination of uh, memory and SSD based storage for storing your JSON documents. And then uh, there's also uh, there's a video from a former guest of the show. Uh, Ryan Crocker, he is on a Channel 9 video, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes. But he gives a quick introduction to DocumentDB, and he walks through it, and it's pretty cool. Uh, Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? The app of the week is an alpha sign-up of the week, really. Um, I, I was talking to somebody about password managers this week, and he mentioned how he uses 1Password. Uh, there is a 1Password app on Windows Phone that's a little bit dated and doesn't really have the full feature set of you know, the desktop and mobile versions for other uh, platforms. But this uh, week I came across, uh, there was a sign up for, from the creator of 1Password uh, so you can get access to their alpha app and give them feedback. So if that's something you're interested in, check out our show notes. We'll have a link to their sign up page. It's a little bit longer of a URL. I don't feel like uh, saying. Um, and otherwise, if you do have one password and you didn't know that they had an app. We'll have the link to the uh, Windows Phone store for the existing version as well. What do you think of their logo, Carl? Um, you know, it's it, it's a, it's a key. I mean, it's you know, you're keeping no, your- the uh, on the it, I'm looking at the the sign up. It's uh, it's the the logo is for Agile Bits. Oh, it's driving me crazy because it's the uh, it's like the iOS the little switch icon. <laughs> I keep wanting to click it. It does look like it's something you can click. Yeah, maybe that was intentional though. Okay, Brian, we have a game that we play. It's really easy. You don't know. You don't have to know how to play it ahead of time. Okay, I'm just getting it out here. Okay. All you got to do is pick a number between one and four, and then I will ask you a question. Okay, three. Three. Okay. Would you rather sleep on the sidewalk for seven nights straight during normal weather or for one night while it rains? Oh, one night for where it rains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't would, really say what the temperature is, so. Well, it doesn't matter. I was Army Infantry for four years, and I slept in much worse, so that is no big deal. Okay. <laughs> I, I I could just sense, like, the next thing you're saying, I'm going to do it tonight for fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Carl, pick a number. I'll take question number two. Number two, would you rather be great at one sport but awful at all others, or just be fair at all of them? This one seems incredibly easy. I, You know, I can be fair at all of them, you know I I, oh. I would rather do that. You know, I'm surprised. Well, that gives you okay. that gives you more opportunity to just participate and have fun. I mean, if you suck at something, you don't really want to participate at it. Yeah, I guess I was thinking of like the professional athlete, right? If I could be like that good at one sport, I guess if if it's not that level of great, then because uh, I when well, I already have that with foosball, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, I guess I would pick the same as you then. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay, so. Brian, where can people find you if they want to learn more about Prism and yourself? 
Well, obviously, my, my website's the best place to start, brianlagunas.com. I'm on Twitter, at brianlagunas. Uh, you can reach me at my GitHub as well for Prism, which is uh, github.com slash prismlibrary. Uh, you can find me at Infragistics. You know, I'm also at a number of events. I'm speaking at Dev Connections. Uh, I've submitted to a couple of other events this year. So I'm, I'm kind of easy to find. I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. <laughs> Perfect. So just enter your name in Google is what you're saying. <laughs> Basically. <Or> Bing. <laughs> <laughs> and Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and teaching us about Prism. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, if you guys ever need a refresher, be sure to you know, invite me back. Yeah, that sounds good. We'd love to have you back sometime. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 